0: Episode 1, Gang Warfare. What you're about to hear is an event that occurred during my time as a peacekeeper, and depending on your constitution, some may find this episode gruesome, so be warned. Let me start by asking you a strange question I doubt you would have ever thought about. I don't mean to be offensive or suggestive, but could you tell me if you were to get into a bath of water and slash your wrists, would you bleed out quicker, depending on the water temperature? Do you think the blood would leave your body faster if the water is lukewarm or scalding hot? I was faced with this strange conundrum a few years ago as a result of nearly running over a distraught and naked femur. Now, I do know this tale may be starting out a bit odd, but stay with me as it's relevant to a much bigger story. So I'm working a late shift on a police motorbike one cold winter's night when a naked female runs directly into my path. As it was so dark, she literally appeared out of nowhere and I was forced to take evasive action to avoid striking her. Thankfully, no contact was made and I managed to stop the bike upright. She rushed over to me and straight away I could see and smell that she was heavily inebriated. A blubbering, semi-coherent mess, I managed to decipher enough of her story and I realised it was best to attend her address. Arriving at her house, she refused to take me inside, so I entered alone. The front door had been left wide open, and the inside of the house was cold and dark. I walked down an unlit hallway, towards the sound of water and the one and only light shining in the house. As I was unsure of exactly what I might find, I stepped quietly and slowly down the hallway, until I arrived at a door that was slightly ajar. The gap of the door allowed a sliver of light out into the hallway and it highlighted the steam silently escaping from within. I gently pushed the door open to see that the room was full of steam. Scalding hot water ran hard and fast from the faucet into a freestanding bath which contained what I assumed was a boyfriend. It was a surreal scene to take in as the blood from numerous deep and wide slashes to both of his wrists mixed with the scalding hot water and created a bright sea of red-coloured water. The water was cascading smoothly and evenly over the entire edge of the bath before flowing into the waste hole in the centre of the tiled floor. I stepped carefully into the room, reached across over the top of the deceased male in the bath and turned off the tap. We were on water restrictions. Let's move forward to a totally different time and a vastly different place where I'm 12 years further on into my policing career. Now, I take us to this point because, apart from that dark night in the bathroom, this was to be the only other time in my career someone risked their life to get my attention. It's my third day in mission and first day on patrol of an eight-month secondment as a United Nations peacekeeper in a dangerous foreign country. However, there were a number of differences from that eerie night with the bath to now. This time, it was mid-morning. And it was hot, very hot. I was with a partner in a large four-wheel drive, and the person who chose to run in front of me was the extreme opposite to a naked female. It was a sober young boy, and he was wearing clothes. Unlike a police motorcycle in the dark of night, we were easily identifiable. There was the thick, large black lettering of the UN stamped on the bonnet and front doors of our Toyota, which was a dead giveaway, as was the distinctively coloured sides of our vehicle identifying us as United Nations. I pulled to the side of the road as a young male ran to the bottom of a low embankment off to our left. He turned around towards us and signalled to us to follow him before he scampered up the hill. However, regardless of what the nature of his urgency was and my own reaction to assist, I was aware we had stopped in an area that had been rated as dangerous and my training kicked in. As I turned off the engine and removed the key, I took in the following. We'd stopped in a location typical of the area that we'd been travelling for the past five minutes. It was a straight length of road with no obvious intersecting streets, and there was nothing or no one close by. Flat open ground, it was a dirty, dusty area with only a small number of houses. There were a couple of locals 50 metres further up and on the other side of the road, but they didn't seem to pay us any attention. I identified that there was nothing in close proximity of any size or substance that may conceal a potential threat. So, satisfied with what we saw and what we had evaluated, we moved to the embankment. My partner on this day was Ben, who was from my own contingent, and we had recently completed an intensive 3 months pre-deployment training program with 16 others. Even though he was a few years younger than I, And with eight years less policing experience, I knew he possessed the right mix of experience, desire and capability to get the job done. So with our eyes focused at the top of the ridge and towards a young boy, Ben and I scaled the embankment. You know, it's often said that one of the many attractions and challenges and excitement of policing is that no two jobs are the same. This was to ring true today as not one of the many varying situations that I'd attended to over my career nor the amount of training I had been exposed to could in any way have possibly prepared me for what was about to transpire. We reached the young boy standing on top of the embankment, and I followed his outstretched arm as he pointed across the landscape to an open and disused plantation. 70 metres away, in the middle of the field, were four males all around 15 years of age. One of the four was lying on his back, a red and blue bandana wrapped around the top of his head which in this part of the neighbourhood signified he was affiliated to one of three local gangs. Two of the males were at his feet. The third one stood over him at his head. It was obvious some degree of conflict had either occurred or was about to, as the two to the left were dancing on their feet as if they were boxing someone. The closer of those two continuously prodded the side of the male on the ground with what appeared to be a two-metre-long stick. My attention was drawn to the male at the head as he bent down and with his left hand grabbed a handful of the coloured bandana and hair of the male on the ground. I watched him forcefully yank the head and upper body upwards, the youth on the ground offering no resistance as his arms hung limply at his sides. Then the male holding the head swung his right arm upwards and outwards, now with a long, wide blade of machete in his hand that had appeared seemingly out of nowhere. I watched the tip of the blade reach skyward to the highest point of its arc, where it stopped for the briefest of moments. What came next was purely instinctive. Proficient in the use of firearms, there was no need to look down. My hand raced directly to my thigh holster and perfectly onto the grip of the Glock 17, where the following sequence of events occurred in one very fast fluid action. My thumb quickly snapped the retention hood arm down and out of the way. Now with the firearm in a position to be drawn, I simultaneously pushed it forwards and upwards to release it from its capture within the holster. As it cleared the holster, my legs automatically began to bend at the knees, the top half of my body leaning forwards. Not only does this serve to reduce the size of your outline, it places you into a semi-crouched position to provide a stable, centred and a balanced platform from which to fire. I punched the Glock out in front of me. And as the sights quickly came up towards my target, my index finger moved onto the light and sensitive trigger and began to squeeze. Then, remarkably, with all of those actions occurring within one and a half seconds, the incredible yet deafening cacophony of sound of multiple rounds being released from both Ben's Glock and mine rang through the air and loudly into my ears. Three times in 30-plus years I drew my firearms as state police officer, and in each of those three times I take pride in saying it was never discharged. Yet now, on my third day in mission employed to keep the peace as a United Nations peacekeeper, rounds were to fly in what was to be the first of a few uses of that firearm. That Glock was forced to sleep with me every night. I would remove the magazine and place it under my pillow because, as it turned out, you never knew when Or just how quickly it may be needed. But I'll leave those stories for another time. Let me give you a quick insight how it came to be in the plantation in the first place. Our first day in mission had been spent flying in on a military aircraft into a heavily fortified airport. It was eye-opening as even though I have travelled widely, I had never experienced the sheer poverty and destruction that confronted me on my arrival. You need to understand that this is a country that at that time had one of the highest murder and infant death mortality rates in the world, and it was considered to be one of the most poverty-stricken. We were to be housed in a razor-wise surrounded compound, and en route we passed an endless sea of white plastic tents. Supplied by the UN, the tents housed thousands and thousands of displaced civilians who could not return to their homes due to the extreme destruction and ongoing unrest. All of day two was spent at United Nation Mission Headquarters, completing form after form, mixed up with a compulsory attendance at cultural and un inspired lectures. The one main thing they shut down our throat on that day was, do not root the locals. They repeated it over and over again, do not root the locals. Now, I don't mean any disrespect to the occupants of this country, but you can be assured that you were safe from my contingent. However, <laughs> turns out not quite everyone or let's say not quite everything, was safe. One country, that shall remain nameless, were forced to recall all 12 members of their contingent back home. The UN kicked them out of the mission for repeatedly rooting the goats of a local farmer. Believe it or not, apparently their defence was that no mention had been made rooting goats was banned. They unsuccessfully claimed the guidelines stipulated only locals were out of bounds and there had been no mention of farm animals. Yeah, my understanding is amendments were made to the rules after they left. We were also introduced to our colleagues from 34 other nations. It quickly became apparent that the vast majority of them were not as well trained or logistically supported as us. However, the same primary mandate of the mission applied to us all. We were to focus on the mentoring, education and instruction of the local police force while providing and maintaining a safe and orderly society for the general populace. Little did I know on day two, the next few months of mission had less to do with UN mandates and so much more to do with self-preservation and survival. I had never been challenged like I was about to be, and my life was to be risked on many occasions. So let's move back to the plantation and the predicament at hand. Did you know statistically, most police shootings occur within a seven metre distance? Therefore, The bulk of police firearms training focuses on reacting to a threat within a 7 metre range, and yet this threat today was at a distance 10 times that. In this situation, there are so many more variables happening than is typically trained inside a sanitised situation such as a shooting range. It's not as simple as drawing your firearm. You're trained to initially consider other pieces of equipment before resorting to the firearm, and it's got to be a last resort as it's a lethal option. If you do make a decision to draw, all of the actions have to be immediate and there are a number of variables occurring. A sense of urgency overwhelms you to remove it from the holster quickly and smoothly, and yet there is no guarantee that it will come out in the first attempt, regardless of how well-practiced you are. I was to discover this in the worst possible way later in the mission, in another episode. There's also the adrenaline dumps before, during and after, and most critically, what is the offender doing if you're drawing your handgun it's typically a reaction to the offender producing a firearm or nearly just as badly a knife what is also known to occur is an instinctiveness to squeeze the trigger as the firearm is coming up and out which may cause you to fire the first round into the ground well before the target and thereby costing you precious reaction time so if all things do go to plan Let's hope the second round goes where you need it to go within the least amount of time. Center body mass for maximum stopping power. The machete-wielding youth is 70 metres away, and I have a short barrel handgun which may be accurate to around 45 metres for an above-average user. Now, forget what you see in the movies. If you decide to risk a shot, and you're slightly off and miss, not only will that round travel for a further 2 kilometres, it could potentially find something you weren't aiming for. So with all of those considerations coming together within what is a few blinks of an eye, a reaction and action is required. Both of the two rounds I fired deliberately impacted the ground close to but wide of the machete-wielding youth. Ben later told me he actually released four rounds into the ground and also just short of the offender. But as fast as the reaction time of one and a half seconds is, the downswing of the machete was quicker. As we released the rounds, the machete struck the lower right side of the young boy's head with an enormous amount of force, and yet I'm guessing, possibly due to its bluntness, it didn't follow through. No sooner did the machete make its impact, the Glock rounds closely followed, which caused the three youths to drop and run. Ben and I immediately ran to the wounded youth and reholstered. It was a horrific and brutal scene the first of many I would eventually experience where some form of gruesome method would be used to take a life. Never in my time of policing would I experience some of the deaths I was about to see. Up close, we could see he had actually been struck twice by the machete as there were two very deep and distinctly separate injuries. Both of the strikes had travelled halfway through his neck but had stopped short of actually severing the head. While we hadn't witnessed the first strike, it had impacted his neck and opened it up towards the back and exposed the spine. The second, being the one we had seen, had struck his right cheek. The thick, wide blade had travelled through well inside his mouth, snapping his jaw and causing the jaw with its grip of teeth to hang outside his now grotesque and contorted face. They had taken the machete with them, but the long, slender stick was dropped at the scene. On closer inspection, Turned out to be a homemade spear, and they had used it to stab him more than a dozen times in and around his torso. It also appeared the long and narrow, sharp tip of the metal blade fixed to the end may have snapped off inside of him due to its aggressive use. Looking at the body, I thought it was strange that the majority of the surrounding blood appeared to be coming from the stab wounds and not so much from the trauma to the head. Ben and I didn't need to use any words to conclude there was nothing we could do for him. It would have been a very slow, painful, and a horrible death. Now, metaphorically speaking, the jungle drum started, and in a very short period of time, the next problem presented itself. News of the attempt at beheading spread quickly, and the local villagers began to appear in large numbers, apparently to reclaim the body. We attempted to stop them, but without a translator, it was difficult to explain. Evidentiary procedures had to be followed. My training and experience told me this was a crime scene. The body needed to remain in situ. Evidence had to be gathered, bagged and tagged, photos taken, witnesses spoken to. However, as we were new to the mission, we didn't yet fully understand or comprehend the vast differences between cultures in this part of the world. At the time, I thought their reaction was civil disobedience but I would later learn it was a very normal reaction from them to this type of situation. Larger number of villagers began to forcibly push Ben and I to the side, away from the body, and we were forced to escalate the defence of the crime scene. For the second time in as little as 15 minutes, I drew the Glock out for career draw number five and held it high into the air without having to fire it. It had the intended effect, and the villagers scattered some 20 metres away where they encircled us. Now, even though they showed no outward sign of aggression, both Ben and I thought it best to keep the Glocks out and in plain view as a deterrence, while I requested backup on the radio. It was fortunate for us that a UN Army unit was on foot patrol close by, and they were the first to respond. Utilising their interpreter and their heavily armed visual presence, they pushed the boundary further out and held it while we waited the arrival of investigators. However, this only held for 15 minutes before the lead soldier informed me they were required at a more important task and were going to be picked up. I watched as they quickly marked out and red-flared a landing area where within a few minutes an army Blackhawk thundered in and they clambered aboard. Then no sooner had the Black Hawk lifted and turned in a swirl of dust, the villagers stormed the crime scene and reclaimed the body, uncontested. As we and the investigators were unfamiliar with the area, our instruction was to follow the horde and document what we could. As they carried the body, we took progressive photos to enable the investigators to identify locations. It was gruesome to watch as the head of the youth was still partly attached and it hung limply, swinging unnaturally upside down in the air. For the next 20 minutes, they rotated four people at a time as they carried the body until they stopped and placed him on the ground in front of a random house. Then someone in the crowd lit a Molotov-style bottle and threw it onto the thatch roof of the house, causing it to ignite into a ferocious and fast-moving fire. I later learned this was the home of the machete-yielding youth, as somehow all of the mourners already knew the identity of the killer. We ensured ourselves that there was no one in the burning house before reporting the fire and continuing behind the crowd for another ten minutes we eventually entered the inside of what was the young boy's own home. They placed the body onto the kitchen table where he was to remain in the hot, humid and non-air-conditioned environment for the next three days to be grieved, as was their custom. I was to have no further dealings with the investigation of the young boy's death except to complete a standardised UN one-page statement. At the time, this struck me as very strange, as back home, my actions in a crime of that nature would require a statement of nothing less than 10 pages or more. Multiple forms would have to be completed detailing why I chose to draw and discharge my firearm and then, of course, the obligatory investigation into my actions. Instead, after completing the UN form, Ben and I returned to our compound where the Glock was to spend its first night under my pillow and we consumed quite a few beers.